Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 299. Come on, man, 299. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, show 299. Next week will be show 300. How cool is that? I'll tell you what's coming in today's show, though. We have, first up, Science News with Mr. JJ Campanella. Then the main fiction is Run on Two Legs by Eugene Foster. Then we have an interview on the observation deck, no less, with Madeline Ashby, who has, if you remember, Madeline did the... First, like the first 10 minutes of her chapter, which was VN, and now she's coming out with ID as well. So I have a little interview with Madeline. And right at the end, we have a little promo for Bodacious Creed, a Kickstarter ebook. There you go. Or a Kickstarter program. So look out for that. So, show 299. Oh man, come on. So just to give you a kind of a, a layout, next week, as we know, you know, is show 300. And that'll be on, I think it's the 31st. And then there will be two weeks off. Two, Starship Sofa's powering down the engines there for a little rest, little annual holiday. So we come back with show 301 on the 21st. You know, here's hoping but I can get it out on the 21st because it's going to be tight. But, you know, I'm sure Adam will help us out there. So like I say, next week is a celebration, show 300. But before all that as well, we've got SofaCon. It's coming up this Sunday. And I did the last like pre-test with one of the guests who's coming on the show. So if you haven't got a ticket, honestly, man, come on, there's only a few left. It's not, I'm not bothered about you kind of, you, you know, helping with to kind of make it work. It's going to work. It's just I would like to love you to be there. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of so excited about it. And telling the good wife and the kids, you know what I mean? It's going to be 
UK time, roundabout, I'll probably have to switch things on, round about four o'clock. And it's probably going to go on about 11. That's in reality. Do you know what I mean? It starts five, finishes at 10. Whether we can keep to that or not. But, by God, listen. That's, yes, that's me drinks cabinet ready to go. That was my birthday last week on the 19th. And, yes, I'm, I'm in the gin now. <laughs> Big old fruit. Yes, I'm kind of connoisseur, trying to get a connoisseur of being a gin. So I'll have a few gins in the morning, just kick things off. And then, by God knows, help us. But, yeah, so looking forward to it. And, you know, there's some things in there that I'm kind of dying for it to come, just for the, you know, the pleasure of, like, being there and being part of it. One is the kind of talk that Amy's going to do with Louise Macasta-Bujold. That is just, I'm just so looking forward to that because... You know, going back, when I, I think, you know, when I was mentioned about Amy, who kind of, you know, the books by Lois, it's just, it's her little, you know, it's her kind of, that's her thing. That's what Amy kind of grew up on. Well, it's never been that for me. I've never kind of dipped in, you know, dipped me diddlies into that. <laughs> dipped me diddlies. Oh, what a thought. You know, into Lois's... <laughs> Where am I going with this, man? But anyway, you know what I mean? I've never kind of tried any of her books. And the other day, because like you say, we're going on holiday in, in a couple of weeks' time there, I thought, I'm going to just treat myself, treat the old fella. And I got a new, the new Kindle, you know, the, the paper white one. And I thought, I'm going to, you know, try some, some of the books by Lois, you know, just to, to see how it goes. And like you say, I'm loving it, to be quite honest. It's, it's a fantastic series. And I was like talking to Amy, and I'm sure Amy will be kind enough to put something in the forums just to... Because it's a, just a, a total confusing mix. If you don't know, you know, a writer and you don't know where to start and which one's best for you, well, Amy is a kind of, you know, the, the, the font of knowledge on Lois's stuff. And just being a, a godsend to me to help me to kind of make, you know, head and the tail of it and where to start and stuff like that. So please, if, you know, if you want to kind of maybe get into Lois's stuff, if you haven't been into it, you know, when I grew up, it was um, Raymond E. Feist was my little crook. He was the guy who, you know, when I kind of started reading, I, I found his magician. And I just loved it. Do you know what I mean? And I also remember Kieran going like, oh, you know, highbrow. Oh, you're reading that stuff. But it's it's what, you know, when you're kind of just kind of growing up or what. Well, I mean, when you think about it with me, I, I was growing up. It was, I'm sure I was, I was probably about 22 when I started reading. And the only thing I read probably... Before Magician and a couple of others was, you know, how to light fireworks and how to stand well back when you're playing with fire and, you know, everything like that. So, but I'm, like, see, I'm looking forward to getting into loads of stuff and, and I'm sure, like, Amy will put a little kind of few words on where to start, what to start, you know, what to start reading, because it does seem a kind of fascinating world. And like I say, this woman's one Hugo's Nebula's coming out of her ears, you know what I mean? So... There you go. That's what I'm kind of, you know, that's me holiday reading for next week as well. And well, I've, actually, I've got quite a lot, to be quite honest. I've got that. <laughs> I've just, you know, with this new Kindle, I'm just like, yeah, I get that. I, buy, I get that. Well, I've got that much books on. It's just scary. Do you know what I mean? Never get anything read, probably. So, we're going to get into the kind of the first part of the show. Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news. And when Jim sent this through the other day... Jim mentioned as well, it's five years today since, you know, this science news kind of hit the airwaves on Starship Sova. So a big round of applause, Jim. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Need a bloody medal. Well done, sir. It's just excellent. And like I say, science news, sir. 
Greetings and jubilations, my shiny listeners, and welcome to this July 2013 Science News Update. I'm your host for this Lustrum Celebrating podcast, Jim Campanella. Lustrum? Lustrum? What is a lustrum, you ask? Well, I was first introduced to the word, reading an intro to one of the later epic Perry Roden speculative fiction books that were published in the United States back in the 1970s. Late legendary editor and science fiction fan, Forey J. Ackerman, used the term on his fifth anniversary as editor of the book series here in the States. As you have probably already guessed just now, this is the fifth anniversary of the Science News Update. I cannot believe I have been doing this crazy monthly thing without a break since just after my son was born, but I guess that that is the case. I also am sometimes not so sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. As I've pointed out on numerous occasions, it does take time and energy and a bit of reading into the literature to do this every month. But I do appreciate the fans that enjoy my little tirades and excursions into weirdness. Uh, it's nice to know that I am liked by you guys. Also, doing this every month forces me to read the literature out there that I might never do. It makes me a better teacher and probably a better scientist. So I guess in the end, I'm grateful for the opportunity to blather at you on a monthly basis. I have found some excellent stories for you guys this month, including a little musical interlude from a famous scientist toward the end of this news segment. Let's start out with a new world's record. Dr. Ludovic Orlando of the National History Museum of Denmark and the University of Copenhagen and his colleagues have just sequenced the oldest genome of any organism that has ever lived on Earth. Orlando's work was published in the journal Nature this month and describes how his team pieced together the entire genome of an ancient horse from DNA found in a 700,000-year-old bone fragment. This genome, the oldest ever to be sequenced fully, not only provides information on horse evolution, but also sheds light on how biomolecules age over thousands of years. An initial mass spectrometric analysis of the bone revealed a plethora of intact biomolecules, including those not commonly found at high levels in bone. Orlando says they found protein, but they were thrilled that they found lots of other complex biomolecules, including DNA. Orlando and his colleagues tweaked established protocols to maximize the information they could get out of the ancient sample. They were then able to isolate enough DNA to sequence the entire genome of the horse. By comparing the new genome to a previously sequenced sample from 43,000 years ago, as well as the genomes of five modern-day domestic horse breeds, wild Prowalski horses, and donkeys, the team could determine when certain genes appeared or changed. The traits that evolved early in horses include the immune system and the ability to smell. It surprised Orlando that the compact muscular structure of today's horses evolved significantly later, likely appearing about 200,000 years ago. The data also helped answer a long-standing question as to whether Prowalski horses, a species native to Mongolia, have ever interbred with domesticated horses. Orlando says, quote, Prowalski horses are truly wild. They are 100% wild. There is no domestic genetics present in that horse. We estimate the divergence time 
between the Prowalski's horse and the domestic horse to be about 50,000 years ago, unquote. The team plans to continue analyzing the genome to learn more about the ancient horse's biology and appearance, as well as to determine how particular genes from modern horses have evolved. But their research also paves the way toward developing better techniques to recover genetic material from ancient samples. Orlando says, quote, It's not unreasonable to expect that older fossils will soon yield genomes. In a similar environment, we could actually beat the million-year time period. It suggests that half a million years is something totally realistic for even temperate environments, unquote. So we may yet get the genomic sequence of a saber-toothed tiger, if we can just get lucky enough to find one that had some level of preservation. The next story simply reinforces that you should never lose respect for the older generation. They have a lot to offer, not just in terms of their wisdom that they have gained over decades, but in older folk, you sometimes make surprising scientific discoveries. Dr. Yanam Quinn of the Chinese Northwest University of Xi'an has just published a paper in the journal Proteome Research that suggests that older people can be a surprising source of info. The paper is entitled Age and Sex-Associated Differences in the Glycopatterns of Human Salivary Glycoproteins and Their Roles Against Influenza A Virus. That is probably about as clear as mud, so let me just explain. You would think that older people would get flu more often along with the youngest children, but apparently that is not as statistically accurate as was once thought. It does appear to be true in certain instances. What are those instances? Well, seasonal flu typically hits senior citizens harder than most other age groups. How badly does it hit them? Well, in fact, some 90% of flu-related deaths are estimated to occur in adults 65 or older. But here's where the story differs from seasonal flu. With pandemic influenzas, like bird or swine flu, it's a different story. How different? Well, Dr. Quinn examined those who were exposed to the 2009 H1N1 flu. In that outbreak, Chinese adults over 65 actually suffered the fewest infections of any age group. That anomaly suggests that they might have some sort of built-in immunity. Now Dr. Quinn says that the senior's secret may be in their spit. Quinn and his fellow researchers sampled saliva from 180 children, adults, and elderly volunteers. They isolated proteins from the saliva and tested how well the inhibitory proteins stuck to two strains of H9N2 bird flu. It turns out that elderly Chinese men and women had significantly more such proteins that interfere with the flu virus, which Quinn and his researchers say could boost the seniors' resistance to bird flu. I'm assuming that despite the fact that this work was done in China, with Chinese as its subjects, it probably has more universal applications to older people around the world who are not Chinese. Quinn says, quote, the next step is to develop an oral or nasal spray based on these proteins, unquote. This is a great idea because one of the few effective treatments against flu, Theraflu, has been having its own problems of late with effectiveness and availability. The next story just goes to show that cosmologists just can't make up their minds. I swear, month to month, you have a new story that hypothesizes how the universe was created and where it is going and what's happening now. The newest theory comes from Dr. Wun Yi Shu 
of the National Tsinghua University of Taiwan, just published in the journal Archive. Xu proposes that there was no Big Bang, and hence no dark matter, and no dark energy that are both needed to explain exactly how the universe works if there was a Big Bang. Well, Shu's idea is that time and space are not independent entities, but can be converted back and forth between each other. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but in his formulation of the geometry of space-time, the speed of light is simply the conversion factor between the two. Similarly, mass and length are interchangeable in a relationship in which the conversion factor depends on both the gravitational constant and the speed of light, neither of which need to be constant, apparently. So as the universe expands, mass and time are converted to length and space and vice versa as it contracts. The universe he proposes has no beginning or end, just alternating periods of expansion and contraction. And in fact, Shu shows that singularities cannot exist in his cosmos. When I read this, my immediate response is that Shu is a nut who is just trying to get more publications on his CV. Or worse, he believes his ideas and is just plain wacky. But I read a little further, and it's not quite as wacky as it sounds. The problem is that his hypothesis does explain some weird cosmological phenomenon that have been otherwise not easily explainable. One prediction that Shu makes is that during a period of universal expansion, an observer in this universe would see an odd kind of change in the red shift of bright objects, like particular supernovas, as they accelerate away. It turns out, Shu says, that his data exactly matches the observations that astronomers have made on Earth about, again, those particular types of supernovas. This kind of acceleration is an ordinary feature of Shu's universe. That's in stark contrast to the various models of the universe based on the Big Bang. Since the accelerating expansion of the universe was discovered, cosmologists have been performing some rather odd, worrying contortions with the laws of physics to ensure that their models work. Another commonly discussed idea is that the universe is filled with dark energy that is forcing the universe to expand at an increasing rate. For this model to work, dark energy must make up about 75% of the energy mass of the universe and be increasing at a fantastic rate. There's only one problem with that. It breaks the laws of conservation of energy. And the embarrassing truth is that the greatest cosmologists have conveniently swept under the carpet one of the fundamental laws of physics in an attempt to square the circle, so to speak. That actually puts Shu's ideas in a slightly different perspective. There's no need to abandon conservation of energy to make his theory work. However, Shu's theory is not exactly perfect. One of his biggest problems is that he has to explain the existence and the structure of the cosmic microwave background, something that many astrophysicists believe is the strongest evidence that the Big Bang really did happen. The microwave background is supposed to be the echo of the Big Bang. It's all very confusing, and it makes me happy I'm not a physicist. Shu's approach may well explain the supernova observations without abandoning conservation of energy, but it still, at the same time, it asks us to give up the notion of the Big Bang, the speed of light as a constant, and to accept a vast new set of potential phenomenon related to the interchangeable relationships between mass and space and time. I guess only time, ha ha ha, will tell whether Shu's theories actually hold up.
The next story comes from us from the latest issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology. Have you ever wondered how a bird, like a homing pigeon, can find its way home from huge distances? This becomes even more complicated when you're talking about a bird finding a speck of an island in the middle of an ocean. Pretty much the whole ocean looks alike. Water, water everywhere, so to speak. So how can they find that one spot? Dr. Anna Gagliardo of the University of Pisa has specifically studied the bird Cory Shearwaters because they do exactly what I described. These birds spend most of their lives wandering the oceans, but every year they will return to the same small island to breed. Although it's like finding a needle in a haystack, these birds have no trouble. So how exactly do they do it? Gagliardo hypothesized that there are two potential cues that could aid their long-haul flights. Their sense of smell or the natural geomagnetic fields of the Earth. But which cue is it? Gagliardo visited a colony of breeding quarry shearwaters on the remote Portuguese Azores archipelago to find out how shearwaters make it back to their colony after being displaced. During two years out in the field, her team captured 24 shearwaters, only catching birds that had just returned after a foraging trip to relieve their partner from egg incubation duty. Some of the birds were then given a GPS tracker and a magnet. Gagliardo explains, quote, We manipulated their magnetic sense by using very strong cylinder-shaped magnets. The cylinder rolled around inside a box that was glued to the head of the animal so that the magnetic field masked the geomagnetic field. And in addition, it was not constant because the magnet moved, unquote. Other birds were given satellite transmitters and rendered temporarily a nosemic. And here's your word of the day, folks. That means without a sense of smell. Their sense of smell was killed by washing their nostrils with a zinc sulfate solution. The birds were then placed on board a cargo ship heading east back to Portugal. After 24 to 39 hours at sea, the birds were released about 800 kilometers away from their colony. Gagliardo's team was then able to monitor what routes the birds took home, either by GPS or continuous satellite updates. All the birds with magnets and a full sense of smell returned home. They were clearly able to successfully orient themselves and navigate their way back to the nest, with all the birds taking very similar and closely spaced routes. However, it was a different story for the birds without a sense of smell. The anosmic birds were unable to pinpoint the colony. They wandered around the ocean for thousands of kilometers, and they were completely confused. Some of them did come back, but only after long and winding trips. Gagliardo says that the results weren't entirely unexpected, and that she had always suspected that sense of smell was the key to oceanic navigation in shearwaters. Although what exactly they are smelling is the next mystery to be solved. The next story, well, it's kind of an old one, but I think that it helps us to understand how we got to this particular point in time with these particular problems. Let me explain. For the last 20 years or so, we have heard more and more about invasive alien species, especially alien floral species, taking over huge chunks of land in the U.S., these plants were brought here either by mistake or sometimes with good intentions, but they really don't belong in the North American environs. 
Now, most introduced species, and by rough estimates, about 90%, don't cause substantial ecological or economic impacts. But 10% of a large number of species is still a very large number. And the U.S. alone has 6,000 introduced species, excluding microbes that are thriving without human assistance. The impact can be staggering once you start to look at it. Uh, Many oak woodlands and meadows in the U.S. Pacific Northwest are now seas of scotch broom. Oaks have largely replaced the American chestnut tree, a tree that once occupied over 100 million hectares of eastern North America. Dead man's fingers, a Pacific alga, carpets much of the near-shore seafloor of the southern Gulf of Maine and the Nova Scotia coast where kelp forests once stood. And massive monocultures of the Pacific killer algae smother seagrass meadows off the coasts of Spain and France and Italy and Croatia. And all of these changes have occurred in the last 200 years. When a colleague of mine gave me the short article I'm about to read to you, I discovered one biological terrorist from a century ago, who at the time was lauded as a hero and a great naturalist. Worse yet, he was a predecessor at the university that I have taught at for the last decade. By the way, the war they refer to in the article is World War I, and Montclair State University, a century ago, was a teacher's college. Hence, it was called a normal school. Now, this is from the New York Times, November 22, 1915. Professor William S. Monroe of the Montclair State Normal School has ended another season of planting seeds in various parts of this country. This is the first year in 12 that he has not done international planting, the war having interfered with his hobby. Ever since he was a boy, Dr. Monroe has delighted in transposing seeds of wildflowers and plants and trees so that the growths indigenous to one section would find a home in another. He formerly took American seeds to European countries and planted them there, returning to this country with seeds from the foreign lands which he planted in this country. In the Eagle Rock Park, west of Montclair, he has planted many foreign seeds, but most of his planting has been done in the woods of New Jersey, New York, and New England. Professor Monroe usually goes on his walking trips carrying bags of seeds in his pockets. The seed he tosses broadcast as he walks along. On his frequent railroad trips, he carries the seeds from some foreign country in small packages wrapped with tissue paper. These packages, weighted with stones, he tosses from the train windows into the woods bordering the track. His work is recognized by the Essex County Park Commissioners, who have given him the freedom of the reservation. Thus endeth the article. I think that the good Professor Monroe was much less of a Johnny Appleseed and more of a Johnny Evilseed. Despite being Johnny Evilseed, Monroe's hobby paid off for him. After his stint as a professor at Montclair, he was appointed to an international peace committee by President Woodrow Wilson, and the Czechoslovakian government gave him awards for international diplomacy. I guess that it's true that one's legacy is not known for decades until you sort of pass on. 
But seriously, this is just ridiculous. Anyway, next story. I am now making a tradition of at least one titillating story per month, and here is this month's story. One of the most controversial biological questions is how homosexuality may have evolved. Obviously, it does not lead to offspring who share the trait. So how is it present and does it have any value to a species? Well, Dr. David Bierbach of the University of Frankfurt has found that at least in one species of fish, there may be sexual advantage displaying homosexual behavior. Although many animals do demonstrate homosexuality, the truth of the matter is that exclusive homosexuality is rarely present in non-human animals, and most males that engage in homosexual encounters also mate with females. Bierbach proposed to determine if male homosexual behavior in fishes leads to an increase in subsequent success with female mates. If this was the case, homosexual behavior would have a direct positive effect on fitness. When it comes to mate choices, females of the live-bearing fish Pocilia mexicana like to copy their female friends. That is, seeing a male consorting with somebody else makes him a more desirable mate, and they are more likely to mate with him later, probably because copulation in itself is an indication of male quality. But would the effect of this fishy voyeurism be different if the sexual participants were both males? Well, Bierbach's paper in February in the journal Biology Letters provides insight into the secret sexual lives of bisexual male fish and the aphrodisiac effects of their sexual escapades on their heterosexual mates. There are two types of uh, P. mexicana males, drab, small males, and big, colorful ones. Not surprisingly, the females generally prefer the larger, more handsome suitors, before copulation, males of the species engage in a pre-mating behavior called nipping, in which a male makes oral contact with the privates of either the female or the male, depending on the sex of his chosen mate. To test the hypothesis that male-male sexual behavior increases male attractiveness to females, Bierbach and his team presented females with a digital animation of either a drab male nipping on another male or a drab male nipping on a female. Yes, folks, he showed them fish porn. Bierbach then determined whether the female bias for colorful males had changed based on the behavioral interactions that they had observed. The results of these experiments show that females that had watched the drab males nipping at either other males or females increased their preferences toward those drab males. The aphrodisiac effect on the females was similar whether they had watched fish porn of homosexual or heterosexual interactions. That result suggests that for males, sexual encounters, even if they are homosexual, will increase their fitness by increasing their chances of later finding a female mate. While the study doesn't talk about other animals, if you are an ugly little P. mexicana male and can't seem to find a female date, Mating with another male might increase your chances of scoring a nice fertile female down the road. The last story of the night is about three things that seem to have absolutely nothing in common. First, we have the so-called sequester. For those of you abroad who could not care much less for American politics and don't follow it, let me try to define this nonsense simply and quickly. 
A couple of years ago, President Obama crafted a bill that would severely cut the budget of the U.S. federal government automatically if the Congress did not do it themselves or came up with a viable budget. Obama abandoned the idea, as well as abandoning responsibility for the idea, but it still came to pass a few months back that the Congress indeed did not come up with a viable budget, so the so-called sequester went into effect, cutting budgets across the boards on all federal programs. By the way, I really dislike the term sequester, since it seems to carry about a million biological connotations that have nothing to do with economics. The second of the three things is Dr. Francis Collins, who is presently the head of NIH. He's an MD-PhD who is most famous in science as a gene hunter and the inventor of a process called positional cloning that allows one to more easily isolate genes and sequence and study them. His biggest breakthrough was probably as leader of the team which isolated the cystic fibrosis gene. As head of a huge governmental agency with a multi-billion dollar budget, Dr. Collins is very unhappy because the NIH budget was slashed by 5% in the sequester process. So here's the last connection, and that last connection is music. Collins has decided to sing about the sequester. Although the good Dr. Collins has been known to tickle the six strings, his science parodies of carefree pop songs such as Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville have usually been reserved for celebrations. Collins has a band made up of other scientists called the Directors. They are well-known around the Maryland, D.C. area and have entertained select audiences such as science writers. Well, the sequester has taken its toll on Collins, and now he's singing the blues. So here he is, the man himself, Dr. Francis Collins. So together, NIH and the foundation supported by the bright minds that we have the privilege of working with, are nothing more or nothing less than wanting to change the world. And that's where we're headed. So in that spirit, we're all gathered here tonight to celebrate the prize, the shared values, the shared missions, and the shared burdens. It seemed appropriate not only for me to come to you by video, which reflects the fact that I am sequestered and that I have a Senate hearing tomorrow, but also it seemed appropriate to offer you something a little more than words. And so uh, if you can stand it, I'm going to offer you a song. A song that might be loosely referred to as the Sequester Blues. So it's a 12 bar blues and you know where that's going, but it has a little bit of encouragement in the uh, last couple of verses. So here we go. guy, if you know what I mean. But I wasn't prepared for 2013. Cutting medical research makes all Americans lose. We could do so much, but we're plumb out of luck. I got the low-down sequester blues. Oh, yeah, I do. I got the blues. Well, born of a Congress of disarray, what kind of word is this anyway? Sequestration, it seems meant to confuse. Well, I guess that's not wrong, cause I'm singing this song, I got the low-down sequester blues. So what are we gonna do about this? Well, Shall we live with the chill? Shall we move to Brazil? 
and blame the whole thing on Capitol Hill. No, 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 it's future hopes we choose. So our hats are off to Ruslan Medzitoff to cure the lowdown sequester blues. Thank you, Ruslan. Give us hope, man. Given a boost from the Lurie Prize, there's no contest that a science can lose. Well, the future is now, and we've got the know-how to blow away those sequestered blues. Well, the future is now, and we've got the know-how to blow away those sequestered blues. Oh, yeah. Well, there isn't much I can add to that. One thing we can say, though, is if Francis Collins is singing the blues, maybe somebody should be interviewing Muddy Waters about uh, government bureaucracies and the NIH. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Stay away from bluesy sequesters. Celebrate the end of a lustrum. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, James. What well, can I say? Five years. <laughs> now, I don't think you've missed one, to be quite honest. Is, is that right? Have you ever missed a, a science news? I don't think so. Wow, man. Give him two medals. <laughs> Jim, thank you, honestly. Thank you. Big thank you. Next up is the main fiction, and it is Running on Two Legs by Eugene Foster. Little heads up for Eugene. Eugene Foster calls home a mildly haunted, fate-infested house in Metro Atlanta that she shares with her husband, Matthew. Eugene received the 2009 Nebula Award for a novelette. A, a novelette. Sina Baker, fabulous priest, red mask, black mask, gentleman, beast. The 2011 Travelcast People's Award for Best Short Story, the 2012 E-Festival of Words, Best Independent Short Story Collection e-book, and the 2002 Phobius Award. Her fiction has been translated into eight languages and nominated for the Hugo and the British Science Fiction Award Association Awards. And I remember Larry read that story, the, the uh, Sinna Baker one, and just the praise that you know, was getting when Larry did that Excellent narration by our, our very old Mr. Santuro. It is narrated by Veronica Gaguer, and Veronica is just, get, oh, just get, oh. <laughs> yeah, sorry, just gets it, man, just get, what a great narrator Veronica is. If you remember, and I keep harping on about this, the Return to Earth story were played by, oh, <laughs> young fella called Jones, I forget his first name off the top of my head, but just, you know, Blends, voice is perfect, blends straight into a story. So, Veronica, this is a fantastic narration as well. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. Running on Two Legs, written by Yuji Foster, read by Veronica Jaguer. 
My mother used to tell stories of how I talked to animals when I was a little girl. And then she'd laugh when she'd describe how indignant I got because no one believed they talked back. I don't remember much of that period of my life. There were a lot of hospitals, white rooms, other pale children next to me, all of us with clear IV tubes taped to our parchment paper skin, and doctors, smiling men with haunted eyes that they tried so hard to keep us from seeing. That's mostly what I remember. And then came the miraculous words, in remission. I remember those, and the tears on my mother's face when the doctor said them, for once without the not-quite-hidden anguish in his eyes. Everything was better after that. After those words, I remember summer days spent grubby and exhausted in the old abandoned shack behind our house. No longer did I keep company with hospital raids, but rather with neighborhood kids who had experienced no greater hurt than a scraped knee or a bruised shin. Kids who'd never had to listen to their parents sob just outside their door, thinking you couldn't hear them. And kids who had no memory of being so sick that even the feel of a blanket was unbearable agony. I think I stopped talking to animals then. Or maybe I just had better things to do than listen to the birds chattering at my window or the squirrels quarreling in the tree outside. But I heard them again today. Manchicks pelted my nest. I heard through the rolled-down window of our old Honda Civic as we pulled into the parking lot of the clinic. Did you say something? I asked my husband. Kevin shook his head. He needed a haircut. The waves in his hair were turning into frizzy curls in the Georgia heat. I mourned the Civic's air conditioner, its cooling breeze a memory of more prosperous days. Time to build again, I heard. And I recognized the voice, a shrill helium babble, a tone I hadn't heard in over two decades. I looked up, and sure enough, I saw the muted, very red breast of a she-robin hopping on a branch beside the tattered remains of a nest. Another bird, a brown one with white shoulders, cocked its head sympathetically. That's what I knew. Even before I saw the doctor. A woman this time, but still with the same cheery smile that couldn't conceal the sorrow that was a requisite of her job. I knew. Kevin held my hand in reception as we waited to be called. They didn't keep us stewing for long. Maybe when the results are bad, they try to cut you a break on the limbo time spent half-bored, half-terrified amongst the screaming children and the old issues of People and National Geographic. Dr. Graykin didn't bother with small talk. She never did. The results of your biopsy came back, Jenny. I'm afraid it's not good. The tests showed a malignancy. I expected to feel horrified, or at the very least afraid, but instead all I could think of were the words of the robin. Time to build again. How did birds mark time? It was Kevin who reacted. Cancer? The word was a gasp, a choked whisper. I'm afraid so. What are our options? He said. Our options. Sometimes I got mad at Kevin when he inadvertently left my name off memberships he signed us up for, like the paperback book club or the music of the month club. For that matter, the cable was still only in his name. But he remembered this time. I'd recommend a rigorous course of chemotherapy, Dr. Graykin said. I'm afraid this is a fairly aggressive form of cancer, and because of the nature of the tumor, I believe a hysterectomy will be necessary. 
the last set of x-rays showed another mass already forming. Complete removal of the impacted organs will give us the best chance of beating this. Now Dr. Graykin was included in my prognosis. Give us the best chance, she'd said. What are my odds? With that one word, my, I let the illusion slip. It crumbled to dust like brittle flower husks in winter, exposing me to what the doctor and my husband had been trying to shield me from. But this was my fight and my sickness, mine and mine alone. In the end, it'd be me vomiting my insides out from the chemo, too weak to even raise a hand to brush the hair out of my eyes. No matter how supportive Kevin was or how solicitous Dr. Reagan, they couldn't carry that for me. I'd say pretty good, Dr. Graykin said. I think we've caught it early enough. Maybe seven out of ten women can expect to push it into remission, assuming that you act decisively now. Seven out of ten. My future was laid out, reduced to a number game of statistics and uncertainty. I let Kevin make the follow-up appointments with the receptionist, scheduling when I would have the poisons pumped into my veins to kill the cells that turned against me, setting the date for when they excised the organs that were killing me like a Trojan horse invaders from the inside. Back in the car, I sat listening to the birds. Winds changing, thunderstorm flying in on cloud wings, I heard. I'd never learned what the birds indigenous to Georgia were, their feather patterns or migratory habits. But I knew what this one would look like from his voice. He'd be one of those little brownish-gray birds that dive at crows to scare them away from their nests. It always impressed me how fearless they were, attacking other birds that were two, sometimes three times larger. Kevin stared into space behind the wheel. The keys dangled from his fingers, idle. Rain shoes, worms out, the bird said. We'll get through this, Kevin finally said. But no kids on top of everything else. His words dribbled away, and between us, silence dug its fingernails in. No kids. After the hysterectomy, I wouldn't be able to experience the wonder of growing a new life inside of me. I'd never feel a tiny person develop within me, nor go through the process of expelling it forth in a gush of agony and hope. I wondered why I didn't grieve, why I didn't mourn for the children of my womb that I'd never have. But I felt distant, detached. Full gullet follows the reins, the bird chirped. The Civic's motor revved as Kevin turned the key in the ignition, drowning out the bird's voice. At home, Kevin fidgeted. I felt sorry for him. He didn't know what to do with himself. I wasn't reacting the way the tragedy struck heroines on television did. I wasn't crying or shouting or throwing things. He was waiting to be my rock, my solace, and I just sat in the kitchen, staring out the window. You should go back to work, I said. I can't leave you alone at a time like this. We can't afford for you to lose your job. The words and your health insurance were left unspoken, but I knew both of us were thinking them. I'll be fine. I felt him at my shoulder, reaching out to comfort me. You sure? 
I moved away, knew it when his hand fell back. It's just cancer. I beat the odds once. I can do it again. It was false bravado, but Kevin needed to hear it. It allowed him to gather up his briefcase and his keys and drive away from me. And besides, I really wasn't alone. I waited until I could no longer hear our old car sputtering down the road before I went out to the host of voices I knew were in our backyard. Our yard is large and fenced in. I think the previous owners had a dog. The fence is old and there are gaps in it, large enough to admit cats, rabbits, squirrels, and once I saw a raccoon from the kitchen window. It's an unkempt area, our big backyard. Neither Kevin nor I enjoy yard work, and the weeds had grown roughshod through the grass. Unidentifiable greenery sprouted tiny white flowers, like miniature daisies, cascading over a failing landscaped bush that sagged from the invader's weight. Thin, tall trees, fruit trees, evergreens, and shrubs, shaded the far corner, long, dead tree trunks intermingled with the quick. The evergreens spewed a profusion of pine cones year-round, making mowing a risk-fraught undertaking. The flora itself endorsed our laissez-faire groundskeeping. I sat on the old wooden bench. Its white paint, slashed into streamers by time, revealed the dry, cracked wood beneath. And I listened. Got a seed? Got a seed? Trilled from the leaf canopy overhead. Sky fly high! The sun! Look at the sun! Then I heard a non-avian speaker. What a bite, it said. It was a nasal voice. It reminded me of a young Jimmy Durante. No bite. That voice also had a nasal drone to it, but it was seasoned by maturity. Out of the cover of a riotously blooming weed shrub, a soft-furred black face pushed through, crowned with a cap of white. Small black ears and India ink eyes swiveled to regard me. A round barrel body with two broad white stripes down the back trundled out. Behind her, a miniature copy tagged at her heels. The ripe aroma of unwashed socks wafted over me. They say that a skunk out during the day must be rabid, but I knew these two weren't. Rabid animals don't exude patient resignation, or, in the case of Junior, unbridled elation. Another urban wilderness myth debunked, I guess. Mama Skunk trotted up to me, the size of a small house cat, but with that sweeping tail no cat possessed. I breathed through my mouth and hoped that Junior wasn't trigger-happy. Mama didn't seem to notice my poised anxiety, or if she did, she didn't comment on it. What a bite, Junior said. No bite, Mama repeated. She sat down, not two steps from my bench, her hind legs sprawled out on either side of her. I began to relax. The smell, though not agreeable, wasn't aggressively offensive, not much worse than a rain-drenched German shepherd. With great dignity, she scratched at a spot behind her ear, one hind leg a blur of movement. Teeth on this one coming in, she said. Needs to set him in everything he sniffs. To illustrate, Junior launched himself at Mama's hindquarters and sunk his gleaming white teeth into her haunches. Mama gave a weary sigh. Small ones. While Junior worried at her, she gazed up at me. 
third of the year he is. First daughter and second and fourth sons crushed by four wheels on the road. I'm sorry. She swiped at Junior with a paw. It dislodged him momentarily. My second breathing season. First was an only daughter. Owl took her. Takes a lot out, raising small ones and watching them die. I'm sorry, I repeated. I wasn't sure what else to say. One more season in me, I think. Then I'm done. No more egg crunch in my teeth or juicy caterpillar fur sticky on my tongue. She hissed at Junior as he dug his baby fangs into her leg. No bite. What a bite. Mama snatched Junior up by the scruff of his neck and snapped her head sharply to the side. No bite. No bite. Junior squeaked, hanging from her mouth. Mama released him, and Junior sprang at her back, chewing at the thick fur there. She nodded to me, a single bob of her nose, and turned to go. Junior tumbled off in a sprawl of oversized paws and bushy tail, and scampered after her. If small ones could bite the moon, they would, she called over her shoulder. But no one wants a chewed-up moon. Bemused, I watched them flatten themselves under my fence, the flags of their tails disappearing beneath it. I made a mental note to put out a tray of snacks, leftovers from dinner, perhaps, for Mama and Junior tonight. A flash of violet caught my eye as a blue jay fluttered onto one of our wild cherry trees. Beware the wind, he called. I'm watching, I'm watching, another voice replied. I scanned the branches but couldn't see this newcomer. From the sharpness of the tone, I was betting it was a woodpecker, but wasn't sure. Won't rustle my nest, the maybe woodpecker chirped. Go fly. The blue jay flitted away. Gotta build for a storm, the unseen bird said. But sometimes blown down anyway. The sun's out now. Look it, look it. Another voice joined in, and a chorus of look-its ensued. I listened to the birds discuss the weather until the labored engine of the Civic announced my husband's return. Kevin tossed his briefcase into a chair and his keys onto the table as I started some rice boiling for dinner. I sat in the backyard this afternoon, I said. I've decided I like the overgrown look. Some of the weeds are prettier than the landscape flowers. I can get the mower out of the tool shed this weekend. No, I'm serious, I like it. I rinsed off a stalk of bok choy and began chopping it into chunks. The stem and the browning parts I deposited into a bowl. Mama and Junior Skunk would appreciate the tidbits. Ginny, did you call my folks with the news yet? I tossed a bundle of bean sprouts into the strainer and sent a cascade of water over them. No, I don't really know what to say to them. I picked out several choice sprouts and set them in the same bowl as the bok choy stem. Want me to do it? I didn't look up from the carrots and parsnips on the cutting board. Would you? I made it a game, seeing how evenly I could chop them. While Kevin dialed, I poured oil into the wok and dropped in some diced green onion and teriyaki sauce to simmer. Outside, I saw wings flash in the treetops.
Hi, Mom. Jenny and I got word back from her biopsy today. I concentrated on making dinner. Mushrooms for us, mushrooms in the skunk pool. Eggplant for us, eggplant in the bowl. Even across the room, with the headset against Kevin's ear, I could hear his mother sobbing. Part of it, most of it, probably was for me. But I was sure a little bit was for them, too. From the moment we'd announced our engagement, his parents, especially his mother, had talked about grandchildren. I felt like I was shirking them by having Kevin break the bad news, but on the other hand, I knew the phone call would be good for him. His mother was reacting the way I should have, dissolving into tears and railing at fate. He spoke in soothing tones, the epitome of tender consolation. It gave him something to focus on, something to do. The tang of cooking bell peppers suffused with curry and cinnamon drifted from the walk and permeated the kitchen. I dumped in the sprouts and turned down the heat. Dinner's just about ready, I said. Kevin nodded and began the process of extracting himself from the phone. He was reluctant, but I heard him address his father. Undoubtedly, my dad-in-law had taken over comforting Kevin's mother. I poured us some iced tea out of the refrigerator as he replaced the headset onto the cradle. Kevin watched me eat. I could feel his eyes over the bottle of soy sauce, following me as I forked up mouthfuls of rice and vegetables. I spent today thinking, I said. Kevin put down his fork, his food untouched. About what? I'd forgotten to toss some peanuts into the stir-fry. Peanuts were one of Kevin's favorites. The chemotherapy, the surgery, I said. I remember what chemo was like when I was a kid. I remember thinking that letting the leukemia have me would have been better. The silence stretched. The sound of my own teeth crunching through celery and carrots was deafening. Did you ever think how unnatural it is going through all that medical rigmarole to extend our lives? I continued. When wild animals get sick, they don't stress it, don't claw for those extra few weeks or months or years. They just accept it. Maybe it's better that way. Kevin made a sound. I don't think it was a word. He stared at me, and I had to look away. I couldn't handle the confused, hurt, stark on his face that I'd glimpsed. I stood up with my half-eaten plate of food and dumped it and the bowl of vegetable leavings onto a plate. The back door's unoiled hinges creaked as I wrenched it open. Kevin didn't follow me. I hadn't expected him to. I'd just unlatched the screen door when I heard the scream. No, not me! I... I rushed out and saw a calico tabby cat examining a tuft of gray fur between its paws. I recognized the cat as one of the strays that roamed the neighborhood from the jagged scar across its nose. As I watched, the cat opened the tiny trap of its claws and the animal leapt free. It was tiny, a mouse or a vole, maybe. Run, the cat growled. The terrified little creature scampered towards me. I didn't think it was seeking me out. It was just running away from the cat. It screamed, high-pitched and inarticulate. I took a step forward, but the cat was faster. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It pounced and the tiny animal's screams ended, cut off. I heard the snap of fragile bones shattering between sharp teeth. My headlong rush petered out before the momentum could build beyond the first adrenaline jolt. It had all happened too quickly. The tabby spat out the mouse vole and prodded the now limp body. His golden eyes gleamed in the twilight. Thought well, small warm fur, he said. Try to bite me. Such small fangs, mine are much finer. He shook his paws at the dead rodent and turned his back to it. It's still now. Aren't you at least going to eat it? I said. The cat's tail flicked back and forth like a plump, furry serpent. Not hungry. Then why'd you kill it if you aren't going to eat it? Indignation made my voice harsh. Yellow-slitted eyes met mine. It was there. Before I could reply, he bounded across my yard, scaled the fence in a single prodigious leap, and was gone. I set the plate of food down, half surprised to still find it in my hands, and went over to the pathetic corpse in the overgrown grass. A trickle of blood spattered a soft-muzzled face, plastering the fur around its head and neck. It was still warm. I wondered if I ought to bury it. Still undecided, I stood up. Movement from above caught my attention. Against the shading of the darkening lavender sky, I saw silhouettes flit and flutter. Voices drifted to me, excited and high-pitched. There! Cut it! Mine! Listen! Bats. Little brown ones out in the dusk hunting insects. Such chaotic energy, a wild dance in the sky. And not once did a dancer misstep. They all seemed to know the exact cadence and meter of the frenzied waltz. I watched them dive and careen above me until it grew too dark to see.
Warm blood is sweeter, but tonight it is cold. The speaker's voice was precise, a softly calculating presence. An owl. I wouldn't have to dig a grave for the tiny dead thing in my yard. I retreated, returning to the voice-free refuge of my kitchen. It was deserted. The door to Kevin's den was closed, but when I knocked on it, the knob turned and the door swung open as though he'd been waiting for me. He hadn't changed out of his work clothes. His shirt was wrinkled and his tie loose and askew around his neck. I couldn't meet his eyes. Familiar, soft, blue eyes that crinkled in laughter at our private jokes, ones that no one else would understand. Those eyes would hold anguish, I knew, pain I had caused. There might be tears in them if I looked up. I stared at his chin. I didn't write down when my appointments were, I said. Do you still have the cards the receptionist gave you? I let myself peek after all. Yes, blue eyes the color of the evening sky, still pained but also relieved. I'd given him back something to hope for. I avoided the outdoors after that. I kept the windows closed and the radio or television or both turned up to drown out even the hint of wilderness voices. Trips to the hospital for the start of my chemotherapy were made with the car radio blaring and culminated in a hasty, unseeing, unhearing dash from parking lot to foyer. The drugs made me tired, and everything I ate became seasoned by flakes of rust. But the hint of nausea I felt when I watched the clear solution dripping into my arm during the first treatment didn't manifest beyond a suggestion of misery. I was thankful for that. Days disappeared, unmarked and unremembered while the poisons did their work. Then came the one scribbled on my calendar by Kevin, like a birthday or anniversary. He drove us to the hospital and hovered nearby as the nurses and interns took charge of me. In hospitals, nobody's clothing fits properly. Doctors flurried by, the wings of their white lab coats and smocks loose in their wakes. Fellow patients slouched or reclined under a stratum of blankets and hospital gowns. And my attendants' slate blue scrubs transformed them into anonymous androgynous drones that buzzed and twittered about me. When they donned their face masks, the illusion was complete. Featureless, genderless eunuchs, all of them. In my baggy hospital garb, I joined their fellowship. But they could take off their uniforms and become people again. I, on the other hand, would be a true eunuch after today, hollowed out and sterile. I watched as one of them tightened a tourniquet on my arm and slid a shining needle into the faintly pulsing vein in the crook of my elbow. I dutifully counted down from ten and embraced the darkness that crowded the edges of the room when I hit four. Three. Two. One. Someone had erected a nest of cotton balls and gauze in my mouth and hastily dismantled it while I slept. I was left with the taste of desiccated foundation. I opened my eyes and immediately closed them again. Surely the world was not supposed to be a dizzying slash of color and light? Ginny? I recognized Kevin's voice. I saw her open her eyes, doctor. She should be coming out of the anesthesia. 
Dr. Graykin said. It can be disorienting. I remembered now. I had been unwomaned in the limbo of three numbers, carved up and sewn back together again. I'm awake, I said, although it didn't sound right, more like... I tried again. I'm here. I squinted my eyes open, relieved to discover that the room wasn't still canting sideways. I felt Kevin's fingers against my hand, felt the brush of his lips on my forehead. How are you feeling? I wouldn't nominate today as one of my all-time favorites, I mumbled. You'll probably be sore for a while, Dr. Graykin said. A week, at least. You'll need to take it very easy. I had been blissfully oblivious of my body until I heard the word sore. Then I became aware of a deep ache running through me. Each breath pulled at low parts of me that were unhappy and eager to complain. My arm throbbed where the IV line punctured it, tethering me to a jellyfish flaccid bag. The procedure went smoothly, Dr. Graykin continued. We were able to visualize the tumor in its entirety. Oh, good. You should rest now. Let the nurse on duty know if you need anything. Dr. Graykin patted my sheet-shrouded leg and was gone in a whirl of white before I could finish mouthing a thank you. Kevin handed me a tastefully cheery pink envelope. I produced the obligatory smile at the cuter-than-cute bunny on the cover of the card. The inside read, Hopping you get well soon. Thanks, honey. The words sounded dismal even to me. Kevin leaned over and brushed his lips against my cheek. I closed my eyes. Try to get some sleep. I'll see you tomorrow. Okay. Bye. That night, alone in my hospital bed, I dreamed that I was Prometheus, chained to the bench in my yard while crows picked at me, tearing out my ovaries and uterus with their sharp beaks and crying, Look it! Look it! I didn't need a psychoanalyst to interpret it. I woke with the curtains of my room just beginning to turn from a colorless gray to a pale dandelion buff. Birds would be singing outside, announcing the dawn. I couldn't hear them, and suddenly I wanted to. I swung my legs over the edge of my bed, careful not to tangle my IV line, and lurched the two steps to the window. My legs were uncooperative, intent upon tripping me up. The pain intensified, and I staggered against the window casing. My eyes felt scalded like a handful of salt had been tossed into them. I reached a hand up and discovered that my face was wet. Tears, why was I crying? Weeping, standing, the window, it was too much for me to manage. My legs gave way and I crumpled, taking the metal tree that held my now empty IV bag with me. Pain erupted through me and I couldn't stop myself from crying out. The soft shushing of rubber-soled shoes on tile pattered to my door. The door opened. Light enveloped me. Oh my goodness, Mrs. Broward, what are you doing? It was the night nurse. The window, I sobbed. I just wanted to open the window. She righted the IV stand and half lifted me to my feet. The tears wouldn't stop, and each time I hiccuped, another spear of pain tore through my body. I no longer felt distressed at the closed window. I 
just felt ridiculous. There, there, Mrs. Broward. The nurse settled me back into bed, handed me a tissue, and checked my bandages. My nose dripped disgustingly. Blowing it hurt. I'm sorry. I don't know what came over me. It's the hormones and all the stress from the operation. It's perfectly normal. She tucked the blankets in around me. Comfy? I nodded. My eyelids were heavy again, weighted by hot coins. Right then, just hit the red button if you need me. Okay, I mumbled. The nurse's face grew hazy and the edges of the room softened around me. She patted my hand. Henry's coming round today. I'll make sure he swings by here first thing. He's good at getting a grin. Smiling is its own medicine. I don't remember her leaving. When I opened my eyes again, the curtains were a radiant canary yellow. A hollow rapping echoed from my door. It was that sound which had awakened me. Come in. The door opened a crack, and a man's face peered around the edge. It was an unobtrusive face. Creases at the eyes and forehead spoke of time spent in the sun. He wasn't a doctor. There was too much buoyancy in his eyes. Did I wake you? He said. Judy, the nurse, told me I should come by. Memories of a first light conversation filtered into my consciousness. I struggled to sit up. Are you Henry? The man pushed the door wide. Actually, my name's Dave, but Henry's with me. I heard a soft clicking, like a strand of pearls being coiled together. A tawny yellow and black, indisputably canine muzzle poked around my door. The head, level with Dave's thigh, was long and graceful atop a brindle-shaded neck. Bright brown eyes peered up at me while a wide mouth lolled open in a doggy smile. It was canine nails on hospital tile that clacked and clattered so. This is Henry, Dave said. Oh. I had thought that Henry would be a therapist or a psychiatrist. You're not allergic to anything, are you? Dave said. No, not at all. Henry's ears flipped forward. Hi, he said. Pleased to meet you. Very happy to. Yep. Henry's a greyhound rescue from a track in Florida, Dave said. He didn't react to Henry's words, but then I hadn't expected him to. We visit the hospital every Wednesday. Judy said you needed some company. Come in. Dave led Henry to the side of my bed. I noticed something. Hey, you've only got three legs. I know why, no, Henry said. My leg was sick. They cut it off. A bone cancer, Dave said. We caught it in time, but that was pretty much the end of his racing days. Good as new. Better. Better, Henry said. Doesn't hurt. Can't race as fast as I used to. Boy, I could really go when I was a pup, but I can still get the wind buzzing through my ears. I like running. I'd run with two legs if I had to. Well, sorry, no offense. I smiled. The curve of my lips felt alien to me, like I hadn't smiled in a very long time. I reached out to stroke the dog's head. His short fur was warm, like thick velvet beneath my fingers. Pet my ears, 
he said. My ears, everyone likes my ears. So I stroked the felt and sateen of his pale yellow ears. You know, he said, listen up here, listen. It doesn't matter how many legs you got. The important thing is the running. That's what I always say. It was soothing just petting Henry. Some of the tension, a bit of the anxiety, leaked away as I ran my fingers through his coat. Dave ruffled the dog's head. Oh, hey, I have to take Henry to the kids' ward now. He's got a date with a certain little boy who's very punctuality-oriented. If you like, I can swing by afterwards. Maybe let you and Henry have some quality one-on-one time. That's not necessary. My husband will be in soon to take me home. But I'm glad you both came by. I gave Henry a last pat. Thank you, Henry. My pleasure. You're welcome. Anytime. And you too, Dave. Hey, I'm just the transportation. I know who the real star of the show is. Dave grinned down at the dog. Ready to go, fella? Ricky's waiting for you. Yeah, yeah, gotta go see Ricky. Yup, Henry said. Nice to meet you, lady. Glad to make your acquaintance. See you around. Kevin arrived while the day nurse, a slender, pinch-faced woman with brusque manners but a soothing voice, was serving me a tray of red jello, oatmeal, and toast. I pushed the unappetizing meal away. Hi. Hi back. How are you doing? Not too bad, I said. Has Dr. Graken been by yet? As though he'd conjured her, she appeared at his elbow. Good morning, Jenny. Did you sleep okay? More or less. She performed a cursory check of my vitals, heartbeat, blood pressure, temperature, and oversaw the removal of the ivy umbilicus before declaring me sound. It was such a relief feeling the plastic tube slide out of my arm. I had spent more time than anyone should have to endure, violated by a slender hose piping medicines and nutrients through my veins. The pinch-faced nurse helped me dress into proper clothes before bundling me into a wheelchair for my exodus to the hospital's patient drive. Kevin acted as though I was a sandcastle at high tide. He hovered over me, unhappy when I wouldn't let him bodily carry me from the car into the house. But he didn't press me either, as though he were afraid that I would melt away at a strong word. Do you need anything? Want me to make you a sandwich? I'm not hungry. The doctor said you should eat something. I can heat up some soup, maybe with some bread and butter. No, really. They fed me at the hospital. You didn't eat it. Really, I'm fine. I just want to lie down. Well, of course. After we get you tucked in, I can bring you something light to snack on. Maybe some fruit. My patience splintered. Kevin? Having my reproductive organs surgically extracted did not create a gaping hole that needs stuffing. And even if it did, I hardly think food would be an adequate subsequent for what I've lost unless you were thinking of cramming that fruit into me from a different orifice than my mouth. I pushed past him and stomped upstairs, trying not to flinch when the sudden movements caused my insides to twang and bite. I wanted to bang the bedroom door shut, but I managed to cling to the last threads of civility and merely shut it. I barely had the strength to kick off my shoes before falling into the neatly made-up bed. The last thing I saw before my eyelids slammed shut was that the window overlooking our yard was open. 
crying woke me. At first I thought it was Kevin, but it wasn't his throat that made those heartbroken, pitiful wails. It was dark outside, but it was only a little afternoon, far too early for sunset. Somber gray clouds, heavy with rain and the promise of thunder, enveloped the horizon. Peering out the window, I realized that the sounds were coming from the yard. Without bothering to slip my shoes on, I padded to the door. Nothing stirred inside the house as I made my way through it, blinking in the false twilight. The grass was cool under my bare feet. Edges of crabgrass like crinkly knives slashed my ankles. I nearly tripped over a white plate hidden by overgrown weeds. It was the licked-clean plate of food I had set out an uncountable number of days ago. The noise was coming from the tool shed nestled in the furthest recesses of our yard where we kept the neglected lawnmower and other underutilized paraphernalia. The door squealed as I pulled it open. The hinges were too rust-encumbered to perform smoothly. The stench of recently fired skunk musk assailed me. No, it wasn't a stench. That word didn't do it justice. Fresh skunk is a transcendental state, an experience more profound than anything encompassed by as simple a sense as smell. My eyes streaked with tears and I struggled not to retch, knowing that to do so would require me to take another breath. Through the blur of my tear-filled eyes, I saw a small black and white bundle of fury charging me. His tail stood up straight behind him, the long hairs bristling out like a Christmas tree. He was puffed up, standing on his toes to appear as large as possible. It was Junior. Go away, he shrilled in his Jimmy Durante voice. Don't shoot, I whispered, half-choked. I'm going away. See? At the sound of my voice, he stopped mid-charge. His tail drooped and he deflated. Wait. Need help, he said. I tried breathing through my mouth, but I could still smell the musk. When I inhaled, my tongue and the back of my throat became swathed with a foul, oily coating. What's the matter? I gasped. Mama poofed someone. I run away. She won't wake up. She was attacked? Just here. Looky. A still puddle of black and white lay in the shadows. It was Mama Skunk. She was dead. Her neck snapped. Oh, Junior, I'm so sorry. Your mother's not waking up. Junior butted and pawed at her, whining and snuffling forlornly. What happened? No sane animal would tangle with a skunk, and obviously Mama had got in a shot. For her assailant to have managed to snap her neck after being hit, I couldn't fathom it. Cat, Junior said. All scarred up. No sniffer. And then I remembered the calico cat, the one that had killed the mouse vole. Junior's liquid black eyes gazed up at me. Lonesome, he whispered. Scared. He began to cry, small snuffling noises both like and unlike a weeping human child. I'm sorry, I said again. The words felt inadequate. Are you hungry? You're probably hungry. Let me get you something to eat. I reminded myself of Kevin, an uncomfortable sensation. Leaving me? Come back? I'll be right back. Stay here.
The air was fresher outside. I inhaled with relief. The first droplets of rain plunked on my arms and shoulders. Kevin had made soup after all. I found a large Tupperware bowl in the refrigerator filled with some cream-based concoction. It would have milk in it and vegetables, maybe cheese. I ladled up a bowlful and debated whether I needed to microwave it for Junior. But no, I was still inundated by the residue of Mama Skunk's last stand. The less time I spent in the house, the less exhaustive the fumigation efforts would have to be. I hoped. I was on my way out the door when I heard Junior's screams. They were high-pitched and shrill, inhuman. The bowl shattered on the kitchen linoleum as I ran out. Tendrils of sizzling pain oscillated from my nether regions up through my chest in a pulsating rhythm. I doubted whether Dr. Graykin would classify sprinting as taking it very easy. I caught my breath and instantly gagged. I thought that the stink couldn't possibly get any worse. A fresh infusion of skunk spray proved me wrong. I tried to ignore the raindrops now hammering down from above, but they trickled into my eyes and made the grass slick. The throbbing turned into a persistent flare of pain as I slid and stumbled through our yard. Despite the toxic miasma that hovered around the tool shed, I rushed in. The relief from the rain vied with a wave of nausea from the redoubled aura of skunk. In the storm's gloom, the shed was pitch. I pushed the door wide. A single strobe of lightning splashed whiteness and shadows in with the rain. In the moment of washed-over brilliance, I saw Junior huddled in the scant shelter of the mower where it leaned against the wall. The lightning framed the calico in mid-leap as it sprang. Blinded again but trusting in the after-image memory, I dove. "'Don't shoot!' I shouted at Junior. My hand closed over a screeching, furious ball of teeth and claws. The cat sank its fangs in, but I didn't let go. Red-hot wires scored my wrist and I felt teeth grate against the bone in my palm. Another slash of lightning lit the shed. I wrestled the scratching, biting demon to the dust-covered crate that housed moldering copies of Kevin's old comic books and magazines. I threw the cat in, slammed the lid shut, and latched it. My hands and arms felt like I'd set them on fire. More worrisome, I felt wetness trickling down my side through the bandages. Junior? I panted. Where are you? Mama? I felt a cold nose nudge my ankle. Mama? I kneeled, doing my best not to breathe, and picked Junior up with my smarting arms. You okay? He immediately nestled into me, snuffling at my face. It felt good, his warm, soft body snug against me. Oh my God! Kevin exclaimed behind me. I turned and was blinded by a flashlight beam. Junior squawked and tried to burrow under my arm. Kevin repositioned the light so it no longer blazed into my eyes. I could imagine the picture I presented. I was drenched, barefoot, my hands and arms scored and bleeding, rank with musk, and cuddling a baby skunk. But Kevin surprised me. After only the shortest of explanations, he helped me and Junior back to the house, phoned animal control to collect the cat I had trapped in the shed, and took charge of Junior, setting him up with a bowl of soup and a blanket-lined box in the spare bathroom. We're adopting a skunk, huh? He got out the peroxide and began dabbing at my bites and scratches. You know, if you wanted a baby substitute, I would have thought a puppy or a cat or something would have been less problematic than a skunk. He glanced up at me as he said it, his tone teasing and light. 
When I didn't rebuff him, he smiled shyly. So, uh, you think we can get him descented? The rueful expression on his face made me giggle. When was the last time I had giggled? I couldn't remember. I took his fingers in mine and winced when they brushed up against my wounds. Kevin, I'm sorry about how I behaved, I said. It's just, I'm so scared all the time, I don't... He pulled me close and rested his chin on top of my head. I know, honey. It's okay. I'll always love you no matter what. Kids or no kids. Even if you decide to need to adopt stray skunks and get into fights with alley cats, I'll still love you. I laughed, and something rigid that I'd been holding tight inside me dissolved away. The latter metamorphosed unexpectedly into tears, great gasping sobs that swelled until I was helpless to stop them. I felt my knees fold. I would have fallen, but Kevin caught me. He held me in his arms as I cried, stroked my hair as I wept, my body racked with tremor after tremor. I clung to him, my rock after all. People look at us funny when I tell them we have a skunk living with us. Kevin drew the line at Junior sleeping in bed with us, but when he's at work, Junior usually curls up with me on the couch for long skunk naps. He follows me around as I tend the new vegetable garden in our backyard and gets underfoot as often as he can. When the chemotherapy made my hair fall out, his antics lured me away from fixating on the freakish apparition in my mirror. And when I feel too wrung out by the drugs to get out of bed, he drags all the covers off me, huffing and straining to haul the massive blankets away. I laugh and find I can get up. The backyard has acquired some strange attraction to four-legged and feathered types. It's especially the sick or the scared or the lonely that come to me. Cats thrown out of car windows, puppies dumped by the roadside. They find their way here and tell me their stories. Sometimes the only thing I can do is make sure they don't die cold and alone. And sometimes I have the joy of watching a newly healed bird fling itself back into the sky. Kevin is building bat houses and bird feeders and squirrel perches for me. And he's going to tear down the tool shed and build something better, sort of a triage sanctuary for outdoor beasties to take refuge in who can't or won't come into the house. Dr. Graken was displeased with me for pulling my stitches, but she thinks that between the chemo and the surgery we'll get all the cancer cells. God, I hope so. But there's never any certainty in life, no guarantees, no promises. The only thing I can do is take each day as I can and do the best by it. Or as someone once told me, it doesn't matter how many legs you got. The important thing is the running. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Yuji. Yuji, that's lovely, honestly, thank you so much. Just let you know, that story first came out in the fantastic, the third alternative, number 40 in the winter of 2004, which was published or edited by Andy Cox for the third alternative press. Now, that was kind of oodles ago, you know what I mean, before kind of Andy took over Interzone, which, you know, is probably one of my favourite magazines there, so do look out for, I mean, you might be able to get copies of the third alternative on eBay and places like that, but do look out for Interzone as well, just, you know, what can you say? So, 
We've got a little interview now, and it is by Madeline Ashby. Now, Madeline, a couple of years ago, I think, came out with, I think it was a couple of years ago, VN, little V, capital N, story. And then she just came out now with ID, again, little I, capital D. And there could be something coming in the future as well. This is an interview I carried out with Madeline. Madeline, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello. Now, hey, listen, it's lovely to have you on Starship Sova. And I was saying, we've, we've tried this little recording once already. You've be, actually been on Starship Sova be, once before with your... Yes, you I know, have. ...the 10 minutes. And actually, mm-hmm. well, I forgot to ask, even ask you about that, Marilyn. What was that like for you to record your, your story? Is that a, a little bit difficult for, you know, or a totally different experience for you? No, not really. Like, um, I quite enjoy reading aloud and... I used to when I when I was active in my in my parish long ago and far away in another lifetime as a teenager I used to do liturgical reading and so it, it's you know it's just a thing that I had I had learned how to do and I used to do a lot of like community theater and stuff like that when I was a kid as well so kind of they all play into the same thing so well, we've got you on to talk about your new novel, but I would actually, you know, talk about your old novel as well because it's I think both of them, you know what I mean? I kind of just link so, you know. Yeah, they're pretty tightly meshed. Yes, and, and like you see, and we were talking before again about them covers. The cover, <laughs> it, it is, you know, and I keep on kind of going over this. You know, if you get the cover, you know, and, and <laughs> like that cover stands out in a bookshop, uh, you know, against every other book. It's a yeah, no, guess, it, it makes eye contact with you. Not a lot of books can say that. It just really makes eye contact with you. Did you... They're designed by a guy by the name of Martin Bland, and <laughs> uh, and he he handles all of my covers at Angry Robot, and everybody like basically just says how much they love them. Um, I've, I've even had like non SF people, like sort of mainstream literary writers, just kind of take another look at them whenever. You know, some like when my agency has an event or something like that, they just like they're like, "Oh, what are you here for?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm a science fiction writer." And I show them the book on my phone, and they're like, oh, "What is that?" <laughs> you know, when you, did you have anything to do with the design? Or did 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 Martin ever like uh, check your books no. out, or was it just that image was put on the table for a you? Lot. Like I had, I had some to do with it. Like they, I, I pitched them a couple of ideas that 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 worked and this was one of the ideas that like they wanted a, a human-ish face like a a, a, a non-human synthetic human face um surrounded by machine parts and slowly being torn apart um and and stuff and so like basically when when we had that idea like we could just go with it and uh um and people have been People have really, really responded to it and, and quite enjoyed it. You know, the first I, the first I, time you seen VN, the cover, what did you think? Did you think, yes, it just hits every it was, spot? It was hard at first because, like, I, I, I had never really, like, what the cover looked like had never really mattered to me. It was more like, will I get it done? <laughs> and, and will I sell this manuscript? <laughs> and will anybody else ever read this, really? Um, and so I... I I had not realized how important it was to me until I actually saw it. And, and even then, like when you see it, when they send you over the proof, it's really cool. What's cooler is holding it and holding it in your hands and seeing the book cover that way. Cause then it's, it becomes real in a, in a different way. And, uh, and I remember like, but I do remember that the first time that I saw the cover for VN, I realized suddenly that I was a person with a job. Um, like, what actually settled over me was a sense of responsibility and obligation. It was like, oh, yeah, you have a thing that you have to do now. It's real. Other people are working on this. 
<laughs> which which uh, happens. Like it's the visual representation of everybody working together as a team to bring something to life, and uh, that's it's heavy. It's a heavy moment. So just from VN to now ID, what kind of time spans it taking you to kind of write the first one to come up and write the second one? Well, well the first one, first novel, you have all the time in the world, right? Because um, you don't have a, you don't necessarily have a contract. Um, if you do, more power to you. That's awesome. But um, but I did not, and so I had this manuscript that I had an agent, but not a manuscript that was complete. Like I had sent my agent um, a partial, and uh, she liked it, and she wanted to represent it, no matter how it turned out. And uh, so I, you know, I had that kind of squared away, and then I basically, you know, when I finished it, which was a couple of years later. Um, or at least a year later. Yeah, no, it was about a year later. Um, I um, I got her to uh, to start representing it, and uh, you know, angry like a lot of people rejected it. They didn't like it. Da, da, da. Like there were a lot of different reasons and and whatever. But Angry Robot had like always been interested in in me and my work. I had been introduced to them by Yetsi Debris, who's a um, an editor whose work. Um, I really liked and who, who, who really liked my work. I had done a story for him in the shine anthology that he edited and he basically introduced me to my future editor, Mark. And, uh, when he, when he did, Mark was like, Oh yeah, you should send it to us, you know, when, when it's finished. And that was a while, like that took a while. And, uh, when I was finally finished, even then it took them a long time to kind of decide like whether or not to kind of take the gamble on this person who really wasn't terribly well known at all. And, uh, and I'm very happy that they did. And it seems like they're happy that they did as well. So the second time around, I, I really was, it was very hard because <laughs> VN got a lot of really excellent press and people really enjoyed it and, and stuff. So I was really kind of torn on how to make lightning strike twice there. And then I just kind of, I, through a lot of different experiences, I kind of put that aside and I got it done in a year. Um, but uh, it was a very quick year. <laughs> like it was a matter of months. <laughs> like there was, and, and each time, I, I do want to say one thing that each time, you know, you get your draft done or you get a draft done, then you do another one or you go through it again and whatever. And what happens to me each time is that I get to the end and I read it over again and I scrap out at least 15,000 words from the manuscript and then either replace them or don't replace them. Both times I've written longer drafts and they've turned out shorter. Um, and I usually consider that the sign of, of a good writer and a good book that they're able to like on the second or third read through take out cut, 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 cut mm -hmm. rather than add, 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 add. That's, I, I wish that more, I wish that more books worked that way. <laughs> have you, Madeline, have you always, Wanted to write, or is this something that just kind of came about in your teens, kind of thing? Oh, I, I had always been, as a child, I used to wander around my house telling myself stories in funny voices. Um, it's kind of a miracle that my parents didn't, like, try to have me, you know, examined or something like that. <laughs> but I doubt that they would have had the money for that anyway. Like, so so um, they just sort of realized that they had a really literary child and... And uh, so I read a lot and wrote stories and, and stuff. So I'd always kind of wanted to be a writer. I didn't know that I wanted to be a science fiction writer until 
um, until I was in college, actually. Like, I was watching a lot of science fiction um, via, like, Japanese animation and stuff like that. And uh, and I had always watched a lot of SF, like, with my dad. And I had been a huge X-Files nerd, and we would watch Star Trek together. And I was into all that stuff. Um, but I didn't. it didn't occur to me that I kind of could be a science fiction writer until... Um, I met Ursula K. Le Guin in the basement of a bookstore called the Elliott Bay Book Company at their old location in Pioneer Square in Seattle. She was there to promote um, one of her books. I think it was it was not The Wave in the Mind. It was something else. I think it might have been Power. And but I'm not sure. And but she read, and that just like set my brain on fire. And uh, and thereafter, I just knew immediately that this was what I wanted. And when I got to Toronto, I joined a workshop and met other science fiction writers and kind of realized that they were normal people <laughs> with, like, normal concerns. And How many times I've heard not, that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they liked the same kind of pizza that I did, you know, <laughs> like, kind of the, you know, it wasn't this big mysterious deal. It was just like, you know, these people happen to have a contract and you don't, and and... And there are larger things than that. They happen to have a, a pretty strong discipline, worth work ethic, and uh, and a real talent, and a real imagination, and a real voice, and stuff. And all of those things take time to develop. But but the idea that you know these are these are just folks was pretty powerful. Like this could be your life. And uh, and then I did everything that I possibly could to make it my life. And now it is. So is, I was going to ask you that then, Marvin. Is this this is the day job? Then I guess. Oh uh, no, I have I have multiple day jobs. Every writer has like four jobs. <laughs> um, so like I have, I have a day job here in Toronto where fifteen hours a week I work for a marketing firm, and I that'll be in October when my employer has her has her second child. I I will take over the company for a while, but it's a very tiny, tiny little boutique marketing firm. And we have a handful of clients that we are very happy with and and that we take care of pretty well, I think. And then I also am on kind of on a regular, not a regular contract, but I do regular work for Intel Labs, which is um, a division of inter- the Interaction Experience Research Lab at Intel uh, in Portland and um, Portland, Oregon. And uh, I would do science fiction prototyping for them, um, which means that I write science fiction stories about technologies that they have in development for the benefit of their engineers. Like they talk about, you know, they design a chip, <laughs> process of de- designing a chip, and they say, you know, we'd like to do X, Y, and Z with it. And I say, here are the social ramifications of X, Y, and Z that you might not have thought about. Enjoy. <laughs> and so there I work for Brian David Johnson. And I've done work for Sci Futures and for the Institute for the Future out in Palo Alto. That's um, David Peskovitz's and Marina Gorbitz's um, firm. That's like a foresight firm. So I do a mixture of like, and then I write books. And so I, I for my for my England bosses. So I have bosses in Toronto, Portland, Nottingham, and occasionally San Francisco. <laughs> Do you think you would ever take the leap then, Madeline, just to, to say, right, forget all the kind of day jobs, writing is now the job, or do you kind of just still like to have that kind of, I'm not saying like a security blanket of the kind of income coming in, but just 
this ethic of going to work, you know, if you know what I mean. Well, I get to I get to do all of my work from home now. Like the seduction of like not having to go to work um doesn't exist for me because I work from home for all of these jobs. Like occasionally they will fly me to somewhere else and I will give a presentation or something like that. But um um but mostly like even in Toronto, you know, I stay at home doing part-time work for my Toronto boss and she and I will meet up and, you know, have a meeting or you know, see a client or have lunch or something like that. And and that's the extent of it. So really like I still get to have the lifestyle where if I don't feel like getting out of pajamas, I don't have to. And that's pretty sweet. <laughs> like um I think that I mean if I wanted to make like in a lot of ways I do make my living or not my living, but I do make my I do all of my work as writing. Everything that makes me money is writing related. It involves me sitting in front of a keyboard and typing and, uh, and you know, thinking about things and learning how to commu- trying to communicate effectively and meaningfully. Um, so, so it's all that. Um, when I write science fiction prototypes, I make more money from those than I will ever see from a short story sale. Unless I wrote a short story that was optioned by like Warner Brothers <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. I still make more money doing science fiction prototyping and and that money is actually the harder money to say no to. Mm-hmm. Um it's a law of intermittent reward. You have to have a pretty consistent um contact, but I have, you know, it did keep me secure for a while. And uh and stuff. So, I think in order to like make that balance out, I would have to be making I would have to be writing a lot more like short stories and then selling them to like clients that really really like them. And, uh, and I'd have to be writing more novels, um, with likely like higher advances than the market can bear or whatever. Cause like, I think that, um, you know, the, the, those days are over like the, the late nineties, like signing away crazy amounts of money to, to, to relatively untested authors, you know, those days are are gone and uh and that's actually probably for the best in that like occasionally you'll have the story of like someone who got like all this this pile of cash and then seven years later hasn't produced anything and it's like well come on (laughs) so i'm not i don't really have the temptation to to really hurt the mix that i have right now well can we talk then if you don't mind now then madeline about just like a little quick recap of what VN is because like I say we've played it on the show oh, in like sure. the 10 minutes but it'd be a nice kind of lead into your new novel well yeah sure um, VN and ID are, are put out by Angry Robot Books and VN is the story, little V, big N is the story of uh, Amy Amy Peterson who is a 5 year old um, self-replicating humanoid robot, she's a Von Neumann machine and she and her mother, the woman who replicated her, who who iterated her, live with uh, her human father, her mom's human lover, uh, in Oakland, California. And the story starts on the day of little Amy's graduation from kindergarten, because Amy goes to a mixed organic synthetic kindergarten. And uh, on the day of kindergarten graduation, she is up on stage and her grandmother shows up and her grandmother is just a real, real bitch on wheels named, um, Portia. And Portia was abusive to Amy's mother. 
and commences that on because you know she's a no class awful woman <laughs> she shows up and just starts some shit and uh kills a little child little human child by throwing him into the audience by his foot and uh she you know amy doesn't like this doesn't like seeing her mom get hit and she runs up on stage and eats her alive by puking a lot of digestive fluid onto her and her jaw unhinges and like she just inhales her actually. So like she eats her, but she also kind of inhales her because inside of them, it's all like carbonara gel smoke and whatever. And, you know, graphene coral inside of a holocore tube skeleton, whatever. And she just like eats everything and she gains in mass because the deal with these machines is that, you know, you eat to your default size and then you iterate another one due to a flaw in the in um, the self repair cycle. So you essentially eat and eat and eat, and then when you've eaten too much, you you trigger a self repair cycle that creates another version of yourself. And uh, and so she does this, and now she's adult sized, and she's on the run. And the the rest of the story unfolds as her being kind of on the run, and and in so in in her journey, she figures out that she's the lone kind of von Neumann robot who among many different styles of self-replicating humanoid that can hurt human beings. She has a unique and singular power, which is to, to hurt other human beings without fail saving, which is like having the robot version of a stroke and dying. <laughs> and, uh, it's how this, the story is how she deals with that, um, with that burden. And, uh, and, Along the way, she figures out that her grandmother that she ate is actually kind of living as like a partition in one corner of her consciousness. And Granny likes to kind of take over occasionally and really, really destroy people <laughs> and and stuff. And then in the sequel to that story, uh, we pick up from the perspective of someone who's been on the road with Amy. His name is Javier. And uh, and Javier um, was kind of her love interest and also kind of her helper and kind of, you know, he was just kind of enamored of this this girl who could do all these things but was kind of innocent about her own abilities. And uh, we pick up from his side of things after he's been living with Amy for a bit and uh, all of his iterations are around him and they actually have kind of a happy, complicated but happy family life. It's not easy, you know, as they say, and was it after sunset? It's, you know, it's not easy, but it's real. <laughs> and, uh, and they, uh, so they've, they've been having a happy life together. And that all just goes to hell when, um, when humans show up on their, on their little island and, uh, all hell breaks loose and <laughs> Javier has to go and find a reboot of Amy, essentially he has to find a cached file of her consciousness and he the that journey takes him from what was it Costa Rica to Las Vegas to Walla Walla Washington to uh Nagasaki Japan trying to find her and and in so doing kind of find himself and figure out whether or not he would like to be a real live boy I mean, and that's I mean that. have, have you got to have you got to read the first one to get the second one or can you jump in at, uh, I would yeah. I would that's what some people have told me that like I've had people read like the second one and they're just kind of like you know you can read it I tried to expose it enough without being mm-hmm. you know too burdensome I hate I hate exposition it's the devil you know and I I wish I could just burn it with fire but <laughs> um but I tried to like get it done as quickly as I possibly could without being 
too high flown. Like I hate when you open a novel and then there's just like pages and pages and pages of of that. Is that so? Then, Im, is there another one coming or not? Or yeah, it it looks like we're gonna do another one. There's we're in talks to do another one, but like we're not. We haven't like finessed the release date yet. Like we're kind of working on like when that's gonna happen. And I think that there's like more news coming down the pike. Like I kind of don't want to tell you everything, <laughs> but it's gonna be like pretty big. Like when it when when we tell you, you'll know because like I have the feeling like we're gonna do like major press releases and stuff uh, in terms of you know like what what's coming down the pike because I think. Um, this is the one, like, people kind of, when they when they finished VN, they were like, oh, so, like, war is going to start. And I was like, yeah, yeah kind of. And then I told a really personal story. Like, I told the story of the robot uprising from the position of, like, one robot, right? Like, a personal uprising. I mean, you have to, you have, to have the revolution in your heart before you, can, you, before you can enact it in the larger world, right? And so there was this kind of in-the-middle story. And then... I think the third one will just be like balls to the wall, apocalypse. Like, and and I'm re- I'm excited about it. It's gonna. It, I think in terms of perspective and tone and and like horrible events <laughs> and 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 stuff, it'll be it'll be pretty good. Because like by the end of ID. Like there are some hints about where this is all going, and uh, and it's we get to go push it all the way if we do if we do more, and so that's kind of why I want to like have a little bit more time with it because it's it's the last time I get to be with these people as far as I know, and um, you really want to do it right. You know, your characters are people that you are imaginary friends that you are in a very deep relationship with, right? And so you kind of if you're not going to talk to them anymore, you really want to send them out on like a with a really big bang. <laughs> well, Madeline, it's been lovely to talk to you. Like I say, I just wish you all the success with, you know, with this Aww, second thanks. one and, you know, with this kind of, the, this third one coming out, you know, that would be lovely when, and please, you know, we'll try and get you back on the show when our third one comes. Be oh lovely. yeah, no, that would be, lo- that would be, be lovely. Yes. Oh, yes. So, well, listen, thank you so much for coming on the show. And like I say, good luck, you know, real good thanks. luck there. You know, I love to kind of see, especially, you know, when you've got like these cracking covers as well. And I've got both these now because I trapped myself a little, <laughs> a new Kindle the other day and I've got both these on for me, ho- for me happy holidays. So that's my reading. Yeah, there, yeah, so. no, you'll, people have been telling me that they take them on vacation and it's like, they read them in like a day and it was hard because it's like I spent so long <laughs> on these, but I, I, I guess I write a quick read. Well, there's know. been so many nice reviews about these works as well. You know, people, yeah, you just no, like, it's been really surprising. Yeah, like, you know, so. and it's, and it's lovely to, keep, to see like a little, you know, a bit of a success story with reviews. Cause like you say, you spend all that time on it. You know what I mean? You're cutting veins to get these things out. Yeah. And then yeah. someone just in one blog post can kind of, you know, crush it. So crush your dreams. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. So. Like it's it's there's something to be said for for that. Like I think that that's also part of how we do reviews now, though. Like there's you know because you know the internet is alive and thriving, and and people have a voice to really talk about the things that annoy them in books and and what they do and don't like. Um, the critical culture is like really really changed, and on the one hand, it's really good because like there's there's a there's word of mouth. Word of mouth gets to exist in a way that is not purely just like book clubs or, or you know, what people are saying or 
or whatever, uh, you know, you can actually read somebody's thoughtful critique. And and uh, and on the other hand, it means that like the critic, like criticisms, aren't. A, I I feel as though critique itself is not as literary as it used to be. It was really funny. Like I I read a review of ID very recently by a guy by the name of Adam Shafto, and and he had caught most of the illusions in uh, in both VN and ID. Like, I had been throwing out references to, like, the Odyssey and the Wasteland and stuff like that. And he caught all of them, and he understood what I had been trying to do. <laughs> and so I was, like, really excited to see that, like, a, at least one reviewer had really seen it. And those are the ones that, like, you kind of really look yeah, for. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I say, Madeline, again, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a, a real blast to, to actually meet you and, and <laughs> talk with you. Know, so. Good luck with the future. <laughs> well, thanks. Take thanks. care. There's a link on the Madeline site if you want to, you know, pop over there. And like I say, I've got those two books on my heat reader as well. You know what I mean? I think I've got like, I don't know, Fortnite in the Sun. How I'll probably end up reading half a book on whoever I choose, but so it's nice to have them. So we've got a little promo now for Kickstarter campaign, Bodacious Creed. Howdy, my name's Jonathan Fessmeyer and I'm going to write an awesome steampunk Wild West zombie novel. It's called Bodacious Creed, and it's about a U.S. marshal in an alternate 1882 who dies and is reanimated with steampunk technology. You are invited to be part of this project, and you can start by giving it a good look on Kickstarter. The full title is Bodacious Creed, a steampunk zombie western. Watch the video and read about the backer rewards, which include digital and print copies of the finished novel, and much more. High-level backers even get serious input into the story, with the ability to name and create characters and steampunk inventions. I have a proven track record of finishing and publishing projects, most visibly my published books, which you can find on Amazon, my demo reel, and my website. So check out the reward levels in the short Kickstarter video and pledge what you can. Join me in creating the epic story of Bodacious Creed. And as, as I mentioned, put a link on. There's a link there. Please go over and support this, you know, this... You can't get better than a little Kickstarter. We just hope it, you know, it takes off and it makes it. That would be fantastic. So there you go. That is show 299. Like I say, if you want to come over to the SovaCon, it is this Sunday, man. It is like Wednesday now. It is this Sunday, the 28th of July. There are still a couple of tickets left. But it's more the point of coming over just to have a, you know, of joining the fun, the quiz with SF Signal up against the might that is Geek's Guy of the Galaxy. There's also what's going on. The Lois interview, Amy talking about, you know, doing her, she's actually doing a live, looking back at genre history, talking about cons, you know, science fiction conventions of the past. You know, and it's all in video as well. And it's a, hopefully it's a thing that you can kind of just come in, drop in, you know, watch a little bit if you want, and then pop out, come back for another one. You know, whereas me, I'll be shackled to this desk for... All that time, probably eight hours. Do you know what I mean? There you go. So, until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Sofa.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.